Good morning. Uh, please open up your Bibles to John chapter 7, verse 40 through 52. If you're using the Pew Bible, you will find the reading at page 893. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word. Let's pray. Almighty God, we just heard in our um, in our hearing a reading from your word where the people who had the privilege of hearing the very voice of Jesus stumbled over his words. God, I ask that you would give us not only ears to hear, but hearts to believe, that we might not stumble over Him, but that rather we would rest in Him. We ask this in His name. Amen. My family and... Um, Well, my family is going to our annual Thanksgiving get-together this week up in Atlanta. And there are certain things that we do at uh, our uh, family get-together every year. Uh, It has turned into uh, an expectation that we go to an Atlanta Hawks basketball game. Uh, I'm the one who started that tradition. Uh, then we um, have our Thanksgiving Day feast. It's almost more of a Thanksgiving Day circus with all the family and friends that uh, come to my parents' house. Uh, it's 30 plus people. We start at 30 and just uh, go up from there. And then we play a football game in the afternoon. Uh, the um, adults against the, the children, and uh, the adults win every year. And then we have a, we, on Friday we, we buy 500 rounds of shotgun shells and go out into my friend's pasture and, and shoot the shotgun. Uh, I had a video, a little 10 second video, but I just couldn't bring myself to, to show it 
of my daughters all lined up in a row with the blasting away at these uh, clay uh, clay disc. Uh, but anyway, um, that's uh, typically what we do this week. Um, most of my family are Christians. We have uh, several non-Christians who come. I try to present the gospel to them uh, when the opportunities are presented. But as I read this passage over the last couple of weeks that uh, Carlos just read for us, I've become very convicted that I need to be aggressive in making the opportunities. With most of you spending, spending time with family over the next week, it is my hope that you will share my conviction to share Jesus Christ with your family. So, what's happening here in this passage that uh, drew me to this uh, conviction? Well, if you'll remember from last week, Jesus, on the last and greatest day of the feast, verses 37 and 38, He stood up and He cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I preached this sermon last week on this passage. I, I, don't, I wasn't out in the congregation looking at me, but I would imagine I had a pretty big smile during most of this sermon. Because just thinking about the rivers of living water, thinking about drinking from Jesus Christ, about Him being the, the all-satisfying source for everything we need in our souls. Um, I, I was filled with awe as I thought about this passage, as I prepared to preach it, and, and even uh, hopefully then uh, that came across as I proclaimed God's Word last, last week. One of the things that I was not able to do, because there, were, there was so much in the sermon last week, was to stop and pause and, and understand the significance of Jesus uh, crying out on the last and greatest day of the feast. And I believe there is great significance in uh, verse 37, noting this. Because see, on the final day of the feast, the priest would come marching down the street of the city, and the great crowds of men would be following behind the priest. And uh, as the priest marched towards the temple, every inch of the streets and even out uh, spilling out into the side streets into the alleyway, alleyways would be filled with men chanting the psalms and and waving palm branches uh, and then the priest would go into the temple he would enter by the water gate and he would approach the altar and the altar was a a large structure um, it was about 16 feet high, and so there was a ramp that he would have, have to go up to get to the altar. But before the priest went up the altar, he would march around the altar seven times, uh, commemorating the uh, Israelites marching around Jericho. And as he marched around, trumpets would sound, 
and uh, he would ascend up to the altar where most people could see him. And as he stood on the altar, he would hold up a pitcher of water. And the crowd would start yelling, Hold it higher! Hold it higher! Because everybody wanted to see the priest pour the water from the pitcher onto the altar. They, they attached great significance to this act. And as the, the dramatic moment approached where the priest was holding up the pitcher and began to pour, a hush would come over the crowd as they watched the priest. Some commentators have said that it was in the hush of this ceremony that Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. In other words, don't think just because you've seen a priest pouring water onto the altar that you have done your religious duty. And so the commentators say that Jesus was drawing attention to Himself and to the water that He offered. The water that He had that would well up to eternal life. That all-satisfying water that only He could give. Well, we don't know for sure uh, if this was the moment that Jesus cried out, we do know that it was on this last day of the feast, on the great day of the feast, where the culmination day of the feast. And we know that the great crowd was there. And we know that these two verses, verses 37 and 38, uh, verses... Filled with all, if anyone comes, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow living water. These verses caused quite a stir, and uh, Jesus became the center of attention. You know, everywhere Jesus goes, he draws attention to himself. And I don't believe it was just Jesus' timing on the last and great day of the feast that caused the attention to be drawn to Himself. Um, our passage says it wasn't His timing, rather it was His manner of speaking. Look at verses 45 and 46. Then the officers, these apparently were officers of the court that were assigned to arrest Jesus. It says, Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring Him? In other words, they were supposed to arrest Jesus and bring Him with them uh, to the chief priest. And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The officers charged with arresting Jesus were themselves arrested by Jesus' manner of speaking. They noticed that He was unlike anyone that they had ever encountered. They perceived Jesus was unique. Uh, Jesus spoke on that day with authority like no one they had ever heard before. Uh, he spoke as only a sinless person could speak. He spoke of God from a personal, face-to-face -face relationship with Him. And this 
caused these officers who were charged with arresting Jesus to take note, to, to stand back, to, um, to not fulfill their duty to arrest Him. Jesus must have seemed utterly otherworldly to them. And, and not only to them, but think about the people who are spending their lives with Jesus. The, 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 the twelve disciples, Mary, Martha, and others who knew Jesus on a personal basis, who, um, who were in His constant company. You know, what must it have been like to be around Jesus? Can you imagine being around someone who never sinned? Can you think what it would be like to be close friends with someone who is able to always and very accurately perceive your deepest thoughts? Or be able to read accurately all your facial expressions? Uh, and then on top of that, He was able to do miracles. He was able to heal people who were deathly ill. And most incredibly, to hang around with this person who claimed to be the Son of God. And that everything in his life backed up his claims. Even though Christ's divinity was concealed within his flesh and bones, he could not help but draw attention to himself. And today, Jesus still captures people's attention. Unbelievers as well as believers. Uh, have you noticed that he lives continually in the minds of the world's dictators and tyrants? He's never far away from them. They are more scared of Jesus than their deadliest enemies. I think that's why the evangelical, Christ, evangelical Christianity around the world is so often outlawed and so severely persecuted in communistic and, and Muslim-dominated countries. They're scared of, of Jesus. And, and in our own culture, there's an all-out effort to try and drive out or at least suppress all indications of Christ's influence. You'd have to be blind not to notice these efforts. John Lennox, a professor at Oxford University, has said, History has come full circle and Christianity is seen once more simply as one among a plethora of competing alternatives, all of which are regarded by an increasing number of influ influential intellectuals as dangerous. And then John Lennox concludes, we shall have to count the cost of what it means to defend historical Christianity. And I think this is particularly true regarding evangelism. We live in an age where, or in a culture that's basically open to, to any number of new ideas. We, we live in a culture where, where free thought is encouraged. But yet, we're never encouraged to speak about Jesus. Um, in fact, uh, there is as suppression um, as much as people can get away with. And so, 
Have you talked to people? Have you shared your faith with people? You know, you can get away with uh, a non-threatening question to start the discussion. Where do you think the world came from? And people will, will engage you. That's a nice philosophical discussion. Or, what do you believe about God? People, again, will quite generally and quite willingly answer. Or even, what do you personally believe about life after death? These are some good discussion starters with people. Maybe as you're with your family over Thanksgiving, maybe you could have some of these discussions. But then when you ask the question, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? That's when the pressure starts to build. It appears to me that there's something spiritually confrontational about asking someone to tell what they believe about Jesus Christ. And I would imagine I've not seen any statistics. Um, but I would imagine that the most common way that Jesus' name is mentioned in our culture today outside the walls of a, of a church are using Jesus' name as a swear word. And again, this is just an assumption on my part. But I wonder if people use Jesus' name in vain in order that they might feel that they have some power over Jesus. Because it makes no sense to me why Jesus would so often be used as a swear word or a pejorative. And so Jesus is absolutely unique. He's also, he draws attention to himself because he's incomprehensible. He captures people's attention because he doesn't fit into the human way of perceiving things. The Pharisees here in our passage and religious leaders, they had a way of, of proving uh, who was true by whether you had the right kind of teaching, whether you were approved by the right um, authorities, right religious authorities. But Jesus doesn't fit the mold. And so the religious leaders just dismiss him. Look at verses 47 through 49. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Talking to the the uh, officials who did not um, did not arrest Jesus, and they go on. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? See, they're the standard. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And it's not just in the areas of where Jesus teaches that he doesn't fit the mold. Um, he is just absolutely unique. Can I say that he is uniquely unique? Donald McLeod said, Jesus Christ cannot be adequately understood in terms of any category applicable to man. He is in a category by himself. H.G. Wells, the historian, said, Christ is the most unique person in history. No man can write a history of the human race without giving first and foremost place to the penniless teacher of Nazareth. Jesus calls attention to himself. And even though he is known as the Prince of Peace, every time he calls attention to himself, he creates a division. 
Uh, we see it in verses 40 through 44. Uh, the well, I'll, I'll wait and read it in a few moments. Let me say this. We are typically glad that Jesus calls attention to Himself. You know, we like to give Jesus help in calling attention to Himself. We build big buildings. We put a cross on top. Other people might, um, if they have some spare property at a busy intersection, you know, put a big cross up for everybody to see. Or as you're going down the highway, you might see a big hill with three, you know, really big crosses to call attention to Jesus. Um, this is a rather tame way to call attention or to draw people's attention to Jesus. But Jesus desires, actually, let me say it more strongly, Jesus demands attention of a different sort. He demands attention that is sharp and that is penetrating. He demands the attention that we bring to Him be decisive. Listen to Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And then in Luke chapter 12, He says, Do not think that I have come to give peace on earth. No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. And this division arises and continues to arise in response to the faithful witness of the church. This division um, comes in response to us proclaiming Jesus Christ. Have you experienced this type of division? Are you willing to consider your witness as being lacking if you are not experiencing this type of division? Jesus doesn't want to make people mad. Let me be very clear about that. That's not the division that Jesus is after. He wants people to understand what it means to follow Him. So let me read Matthew Matthew, uh, 10, verses 34. And I read verses 34 and 35. Let me continue through verse 39. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And instead of these divisions... We try and cover over the divisions. Look at the division that was caused by Jesus simply standing up and speaking. The crowd immediately is broken apart into three 
to three pieces. Look at verses 40 through 44. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. So there's one division. People are saying, well, this is really the prophet. Verse 41, others said, this is the Christ. So that's another division. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Can you see the division? And what is also... Oh, and then also verses 50 through 52. Uh, Jesus also creates a division, verses 45 through uh, 40 and 46, between the uh, Pharisees and the officers that were supposed to arrest Him. But then there, in verses 50 through 52, there's also a division among the Pharisees. You remember Nicodemus, the Nick at night, who came to visit Jesus in John chapter 3? Well, he was one of the Pharisees. And Nicodemus, verse 50, who had gone to him before, who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You see what happened? This passage in verses 37 and 38, Jesus says, I am the living water. Come to me and drink. And all of a sudden, the crowds are broken into divisions. All of a sudden, the religious leaders are broken into divisions. Jesus demands people trust in Him. And when we proclaim Him faithfully, there will naturally be divisions. It comes from unnatural sources. It doesn't come because Jesus is trying to make everybody mad. It comes because our hearts outside of Christ are set against Him. Our hearts are unwilling to come to Him. We read the passage from 1 Peter. A stone of stumbling a rock of offense. And that is what will happen to anyone when they meet Jesus face to face. When they actually hear from Him. Either they will hate Him or they will be broken and love Him. Who are you this morning? I think the most tragic thing that could ever happen in your life is for you to hear about Jesus Christ. Hear His Word read. To hear Him proclaimed. And for you never ever to really deal with Him. To not stumble over Him. To not fall upon Him and trust Him. But just simply go through the motions. What a hard heart you would have to do that. To hear about Jesus Christ and never have anything to do with Him negatively or positively. If your heart is that hard that you are not moved by Jesus one way or the other, you're in a worse position than anybody. And I would urge you 
call upon Him for mercy. I want you to notice as you are heading off to visit family and friends over Thanksgiving or maybe having family and friends here to your house, that when the crowd became divided, He did not try to appeal to their intellect as the final authority. In other words, He didn't say, okay, only until I am able to convince you intellectually that I am who I am, that I'm going to hold you responsible or that I am going to make my appeal to you to believe. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do any pre-evangelism. He doesn't tell them, oh, well, there's a question about where you're born or where I was born. Why don't you go to the census records and look it up? It's down here in Jerusalem. I'm sure you'd be able to find it. The Romans take good good records. Uh, they can show you that I was born in Jerusalem. He doesn't do that. He doesn't engage with them as if they are the final authority. Rather, what he does... He knows that their their real problem, as I, I said a couple of weeks ago, the, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, the problem of their rebellious heart. And so what he does is he appeals again to his to his authority. And he expects them to submit to it or to be broken by it. You know, I've noticed the people who are the most vocal against Christianity typically don't understand the most basic tenets of the faith. They have all these intellectual arguments and they appeal to this intellectual argument, this intellectual argument, this intellectual argument, and we're running around trying to to uh, put out the fires. Okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with you on this, this argument and if we're able to, to score some points here, then they move to this one. And then if we're able to answer or blunt their arguments here, they move to this one. And the reason they keep moving is because their heart has not been challenged with the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus, His method of evangelism was to point to Himself, to point to His authority. And either He would be for them a rock of offense or otherwise He would be for them the solid cornerstone upon whom they could build their faith. So listen for people who are arguing against Christianity. And ask yourself, is it an intellectual argument? Have they really understood what the base, what basic Christianity is about? Because I, I would guess that most people don't even know the basic tenets of the faith as they argue so ardently against Christianity. You're going to be with family and friends as I am going to be. One of the things that I always hear is if you want to be held responsible, um, make your commitments public. And so that's one of the things I'm doing. I'm committing to you to share my faith with uh, some of my family that will be there and, uh, and recognize that if I'm faithful in sharing my faith, there may be a division that I've been asking myself, do I love my family enough 
to possibly see a division. And I want you to ask yourself that question because it seems to me that that is what um, we are being challenged to do from this passage as we look at our Lord Jesus standing up, calling people to Himself, and we see the division. It's only natural. What's the worst that could happen? What's the best that could happen? Our loved ones come to know the Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus left heaven where He had been for all eternity, even before there was a heaven. And He came here to earth took on human flesh in order that He might go to that awful cross and become sin for us so that in Him we might be the righteousness of God. Without Him, we would be in hell. Without Him, all who are without Him, they will go to hell. In other words, how can we keep our mouths closed? I'll be praying for you. I would ask that you would pray for me. Not only that I would have courage, as Paul prays for in, at the end of Ephesians 6, but also that God would use His Word powerfully in the lives of our family and our friends. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we look forward to the traditions, the food, the uh, renewal of relationships, I pray that Jesus Christ would be front and center, that He would be the true desire of our hearts. Father, help us to winsomely, yet courageously, open our mouths and testify to the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that as a result of the time that we spend with family and friends, that those who are around us would leave differently than when they came. God, I ask that Jesus Christ would be proclaimed and that He would powerfully use His gospel. We ask this in His name. Amen.